Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we will begin reading in verse 9. And the word of the Lord says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will, be, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and and the stomach meant for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits outside of his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Puritan theologian John Owens once wrote, Temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise or his destruction. I want to welcome you back to First Baptist Church. We're in part four of a series titled Temptation. And we kicked off this series in week one with the understanding that this series would be broken down into two basic parts. That we would start and we would be, we'd be talking about temptation and what it is from a theological perspective in the first couple of weeks. And then, in, and then number two, we would um, talk about temptation from a practical perspective and what we could actually do about it in, uh, in the last few weeks of this particular series. So in essence, we would begin this series series by exploring from a theological perspective uh, what temptation is and how it actually works and how it affects us and those around us. And uh, what we did is we opened up in in week one uh, with a message titled Kill or Be Killed. And in this message, we discussed um, uh, and discovered that temptation actually is a trial. Temptation, in some sense, is a test. Okay, and that temptation, like all other trials in our lives, has the potential to either prove or disprove our faith in Christ. As, as James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials and temptations of, of various kinds. Because the testing of your faith produces something in your life. Ultimately, it produces spiritual maturity. And then he goes on to say that the man who stands up underneath the test um, that he has faced, that he will in fact be blessed. All right, blessed because... Um, 
enduring this trial proves that he loves God. And now that's my paraphrase of the text, but that's what we, we talked about. Temptation is a trial. And like all other trials, it has a, uh, a tendency to prove or disprove our faith. Also in week one, we talked about the fact that temptation is not something that is external from us. It doesn't begin outside of us. It doesn't begin out there. It actually is something that is internal. James says that we are tempted because, because our own desires lead us away and entice us. Temptation has its roots in our own desires. We are tempted because our God-given desires for things like security and sex and food and friendship and happiness, those desires have become twisted and distorted uh, to the point that these desires can lead us away from God. In fact, we tend to pursue our own desires more than we pursue God himself. We pursue the gifts rather than the giver. Now, there are three important things that we came away with in in week one about temptation. Number one, people just don't fall into sin. You don't walk with God and suddenly you just trip and fall into sin. All right. Sin has a process to it. It begins somewhere. Right. Um, Sin starts in our desires and our desires allow the seed to get planted. And sin is conceived in our desires and it begins to grow. And then number two, sin, once it has become full grown, once it grows up, has a catastrophic cost to it. As James says, sin produces death in our lives. And this death comes in multiple forms. It can be spiritual death for the unbeliever. It can be physical death. It can be financial death. It can be relational uh, death. You know, sin causes death to marriages and families and opportunities and career and even, even whole communities, right? Sin causes death in all sorts of areas in our lives. And I think we all know that and have experienced that. Number three, because sin is so catastrophic and because sin starts in the earliest stages in our own desires, we must be willing to kill sin in its infancy, In the temptation stage, as John Owen said, kill sin or it be killing you. Uh, Well, the best place to kill sin is in in the desire stage before it can grow up and kill us. In the temptation stage before it can grow. And then week two, in the message titled No Excuses, we discovered that we really don't have an excuse not to fight temptation. We don't have an excuse not to uh, fight against sin in our lives. Right in the underlying desires that cause sin. In fact, we talked about five reasons why we don't have an excuse. Number one, with a clear example from the Bible, the Paul tells us that sin, the sins of Israel, and their consequences of those were recorded to teach us and to instruct us the, uh, about the uh, the destructive nature of sin and temptation and how we should walk away from it. All right. Number two, all temptation is common to man. Right. We don't have an excuse because because. Every temptation that we face has been faced by someone else and have been overcome by someone else. Number three, God is faithful. The reason why you can overcome temptation is because of you. You can overcome temptation because of God. He is faithful. In fact, God will not let you be tempted, number four, more than what you can stand. You will not be tempted beyond your ability to withstand temptation because Number five, God will provide a way out. God always provides a way to escape temptation that we are facing. So the reality is that we don't have an excuse to fight temptation and to kill sin in our lives. And then in week three, in a message titled Submit and Resist, we begin uh, to, to get practical and, and answer the question, well, then how do I overcome temptation in my life? What does that look like? And we answer that question by applying two completely opposite ideas into our lives. So the ideas of submit and resist 
We're to submit to God and at the very same time resist the devil. Now, submission has this idea of coming under complete authority of someone else. And resistance then, by the opposite, has the idea to stand against and stand your ground and push back against someone who's coming against you. And so in order to overcome temptation in our lives, we need to be completely uh, under the authority of God in every part of our life. And we need at the same time to actively resist the devil and ferociously push back against him when he comes at us with temptation. This is how we stand the trial of temptation. In fact, James says, if you will submit to God and resist the devil, he will flee from you. That's a promise from God. Another strategy then that the Bible gives us to overcome temptation that we talked about is to draw near to God. In fact, James tells us, draw near God to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, he will reciprocate and draw near to you. This right here is the most down-to-earth, most practical advice about how to overcome temptation and sin. Draw near to God. Well, how do you do that? Well, we answer that question. Number one, You draw near to God by trusting Jesus as your Savior. You can't be close to God. You can't have a relationship with Him until you accept that free gift of eternal life and put your trust in Jesus. Number two, you draw near to God by listening to His voice, by reading His Word. God has spoken to us and continues to speak to us, and He gives us all the answers we need to overcome temptation. Number three, talk to God. God has invited you into an intimate, personal relationship with Him, and He wants to hear from you. You have a direct hotline to the creator of the universe through prayer. Number four, draw near to God when you worship him. Worship him not just on Sunday morning. Worship him every other day as well. Worship him in song and worship him with your actions and your deeds. Number five, you draw near to God through fellowship. You draw near to God when you draw near to his people because his people are the very body of Christ. So that's the practical way to overcome temptation that you can apply to your lives. Well, today, we're going to change gears a little bit. Uh, I mean, we're still going to be talking practical ways to overcome temptation. But um, the last message that we talked about painted kind of like this military picture of fighting temptation, right? In fact, we talked about the idea of submitting and resisting in the context of the Roman army. You see, a Roman soldier would both simultaneously submit... And resist. He submitted to his commander's authority. And at the same time, he stood his ground and resisted his enemy's attacks. And the way that, that, that uh, soldiers fought battles back then, they would line up shield to shield. And they would, both, they would physically use all of their strength and, and their armor to repel the attacking, arm, the, the, the attacking army. Right? They would dig their feet in. They would grit their teeth. They would lean forward. They would push back against the enemy with all of their strength. That is the picture of resistance. That is the idea that we're talking about. That's the idea we talked about last week. Well, this week, um, we're going to talk about the fact that there are times when temptation comes that you don't need to dig in, that you don't need to wrestle, that you don't need to push back like this. Instead, you simply need to run. We need to flee. We need to get away from that particular temptation. You see, there are certain temptations in our lives that God commands us not to stand and fight, not to, not to stand there and wrestle, and not to try to use willpower, but to flee, to run. In fact, Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter um, 2, verse 22, probably the easiest verse reference to remember in the entire Bible, 2, 2, 2, 2, 2, right? 2 Timothy 2, 
verse 22, Paul says to Timothy, so flee, run away from youthful passions. Don't dabble in them. Don't entertain them. Don't wrestle with them. Don't fight with them. Flee, run. Okay. There are certain temptations that we are called to run from, not stand and fight, but to get up and run. And this is an urgent command. There are certain temptations we need to flee from, but what are they? Paul tells Timothy to, to flee youthful passions. Okay, that's how it's rendered in the ESV. But what are youthful passions? Well, the NIV renders the text as flee the evil desires of youth. Well, that's a little more descriptive. What kinds of evil desires do young people have? I wonder. Right? The King James Version says flee also youthful lusts. I think now maybe we're getting somewhere. Right? In fact, the Greek word that gets translated as desire or passions or lust in this text is this word right here. And it's it's pronounced epithumia. Epithumia. And and the idea of this word, the the ideas that it conveys is desire, craving, longing, a desire for something that's, that's forbidden or lust. In fact, the root word... Uh, for this word actually means to lust after or to covet. Well, what do you think that uh, young people lust after and covet? What possibly could this youthful passion be? Well, it's nothing else but the overwhelming desire for sex. That's what Paul's talking about here. Okay, I mean, most of us have been teenagers, right? And young adults. And we know what it's like when something wakes up inside of us, right? And we begin to have these powerful urges and desires for this kind of intimacy. It's a youthful passion. It's a youthful desire. It's something that gets awakened when we're young. And Paul's talking about the desire for sex. Now, Paul is not just talking about sex in a generic sense. And he's, he's not saying flee from sex or flee from, from the desire for it. Because actually, Sex is a gift from God. And God himself gave us that natural desire for it. It's a part of God's design for for human life. God wants us to receive that gift. God wants us to experience that gift. God wants us to receive the joy that comes from that gift. So it's, it's not sex per se that Paul says to flee from. It's not... It's not flee from, from the desire for sex itself. So this must be something else to this, right? Remember, the NIV says, says that this passion is an evil desire. This is a desire that, that is evil, a, des- a desire that is forbidden. Well, well, what would make sex or desire in sex evil? What would cause it to, to, to be um, something that is not good? What would cause that desire to be evil? Because, because, again, we, it's natural. It's a natural desire that God has given uh, to us. And it's, and it's not evil in and of itself. Otherwise, God wouldn't have given it to us. So something else must then be causing it to be evil. Well, what would make it evil? What would make this gift evil? Well, it must be how then the gift itself is used. It must be how that desire itself is fulfilled. You see, as we talked about in week one, God has given all of us natural desires. We have been, you know, that, you know, that, that we have all had these desires, but we are led away by those desires and tempted because those desires have become distorted and corrupted by our sin. We all have a desire for security, right? We all have a desire to feel 
safe and secure, right? There's nothing wrong with that desire. But oftentimes that desire and that pursuit to that desire uh, of financial security particularly leads to other things. It leads to us becoming greedy, which then becomes an evil desire. Security itself, desiring that's not evil, but then suddenly when it turns into something bigger, becomes an evil desire. We have a desire to have enough power in our own lives to be able to live the way that we see fit, to be able to make our own decision. There's nothing wrong with wanting that. But sometimes that desire for power leads to corruption. It becomes an evil desire. We have a natural desire for things that are nice. We have a natural desire for things that actually work. We have a natural desire for things that are aesthetically pleasing and beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that desire. But that desire, when it becomes untamed is, and it becomes evil, can lead to materialism and greed and, and even financial ruin in some cases. Right? So it's not the desire itself that we have is bad. It's what we do with that desire. What that desire has become that makes it bad. What makes sex evil? What makes the desire for sex evil? It's what we would do with it then. It would be, if we would use that gift that God has given you in a way that's destructive, in a way that doesn't honor him, that's what makes it evil. Well, how do you use the gift like this of sex, a desire for sex in a way that it's not evil, that is not destructive? How do we use it in a way that is honoring to God? Well, the way that you do that is you use it how God intended it, how God designed it, how God ordained it. That is what honors him. That is what is not destructive in our own lives. You use that gift in a way that God has intended that makes God glorified and that brings health and joy into our own lives. Otherwise, it's a misuse of it. And this really is a component of what sin is. It is, is misusing the gifts that God has given us. God gave mankind the gift of free will from the very beginning. And what happened? They misused it. And we continue to misuse our free will all the time. We also misuse the gifts of relationships, don't we? We misuse the gifts of our natural resources. We misuse the gift of money that God has entrusted to us. We misuse our bodies. We misuse other people. We misuse sex. Right? That's what makes it evil. It is the misusing of what God has given. That, that, that intended, you know, what, what God has intended for us for our good. Well, how did God intend for us to use sex the right way? How did God design for us to experience that gift? How did God design for us to desire it? Well, God designed us to experience that gift within the context of another gift, the gift of a loving marriage between one husband and one wife. That is how God intended. In fact, that is how we've been designed from the very beginning. That's how he designed mankind from the very beginning. Genesis 2, chapter uh, 24. In Genesis 2, verse 24, we're told that, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Sex is a gift that, is, that God has given to creation. It's a natural desire that we all have. And God ordained for us a life-giving, joyful, satisfying, God-honoring way for that desire to be fulfilled and satisfied, which is marriage. And any other use of that gift is a misuse. Let me say that again. 
All other uses of that gift outside of the marriage are a misuse. And that misuse has horrific, catastrophic consequences. Let's look at what Paul says here. This is a sober warning. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a stern warning against unrighteousness. And this list has, this is a list of egregious sins before God. Okay? Sins that come with catastrophic consequences. And on this list are three expressions of the misuse of the gift of sex. Sexual immorality, adultery, and homosexuality. And notice what Paul says. Those who engage in those acts will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me read that text for you one more time. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor gr- the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. This is an emphatic point that Paul is making here. Paul is saying that sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, misusing the gifts of sex... Following those evil's desires, those things have the potential to kill your soul. Hear me on this. This is not the popular view of sex in our culture. This is not what the rest of the world wants to teach us. This is not what the media is is selling us. This is not what many of us want to hear. But this is the truth. This is the truth out of God's own word. This is the truth we must hear Receive and come to terms with sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality, misusing the gifts of sex, following those evil desires. Those things have the potential to kill your soul. That is why Paul says, flee from those youthful passions. Those passions that have the potential to lead to horrific consequences. That's why he says, run. When someone flirts with you at work, run. When your ex contacts you on social media, run. When your attention gets drawn to those images on your smartphone, run. Flee for your life, is what Paul is saying. Paul, when he says flee from youthful passions, he's saying run from all forms of sex outside the context of marriage. Flee from all sexual activity outside of marriage. Flee from the immoral sexual behavior. In fact, Paul says in our text, 1 Corinthians 6, 18... Flee from sexual immorality. So Paul is saying that when when you are tempted sexually outside of a loving relationship with your spouse of the opposite sex, don't wrestle with the temptation. Don't try to to stand and fight it. Don't try to be strong. Flee. Run for your life. This is an urgent command. In fact, the word flee here is, is this Greek word right here. It's pronounced fugo. And this word fugo means to flee away, to seek safety by flight, running as fast as you can from danger. Okay? It, it means to, to flee from something abhorrent. Okay? It means to run and escape safely out of danger. Paul says flee because the danger is very real. He says don't stick around and see if you're like tough enough or strong enough to handle it. 
Run. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, why does Paul give such a strong command to run or to, or to flee from sexual immorality? I mean, I mean, why does the Bible urge us to resist and to fight almost all temptation? But when it comes to sexual temptation, right, why does he, what does it say to run? Well, the reason why is sexual immorality is unlike all other sin. Hear me on this. The reason why sexual immorality is unlike all other sin. You see, there's a common misconception, I think, that that many of us have. We've been told that sin is sin, and it's the same in God's eyes. We've been told that those who commit adultery are no worse off than those who are inconsiderate. We're told that that those who embrace same-sex relationships are no worse off than those who eat too much. We're told that those who engage in sexual sin are no worse off than someone who cheats on their taxes or drives too fast on the freeway. Now, let me be really clear here. God hates sin. He hates it all. Right? And it is our sin that has severed our relationship with God to begin with. But understand, not all sin is the same. Sexual sin is especially heinous to God. In fact, Paul tells us this and helps us to see this in verse 18. He says, every other sin a person commits outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Pastor and author John MacArthur notes, there's a sense that sexual sin destroys a person like no other because it is so intimate and so entangling and corrupting on the deepest human level. It is, it is a sin that you commit against your own body. You see, just about every other sin that you commit, be it gossip or thievery, or unforgiveness, or greed, or vanity, you commit outside of your body. You commit those sins typically against another person. Now, this isn't to say that you won't suffer the consequences of that sin, that you won't suffer consequences that are spiritual and physical for your sin, because you absolutely will. But sexual sin is a sin against your own body. You are sinning against somewhere else and God, but you are sinning especially against your own body that God has given you. Now, why is that significant? Why is that such a big deal? It's significant because what does sin do? What does it produce? It produces death. Sin always produces death in some form. Now, now think about this. When you commit sexual immorality, you were willingly bringing into your own body some form of death. You were willingly, in some sense, committing some form of suicide. You are willingly bringing death into your life, into your own body. Things like STDs. Sexually transmitted diseases can bring physical death, and the costs can be horrific to your health. But we live in a culture right now that it's not even popular to talk about those anymore. But the health risks are still there and very real. Sexual immorality can literally lead to physical death. Sexual sin can also bring death to your mind and your brain. There are studies that show that people who engage in watching pornography actually rewire their brains in the process. It actually damages their brain. It changes the way they think and see the world and even make decisions. The medical community is rising up and beginning to label pornography a health crisis of epic proportions in our world because of the effects it's having on people's bodies and minds. Sexual sin can shorten your physical life too. 
Do you know that people who are married and are faithful together, that they live longer, experience less depression and stress than those who, who don't? Did you know that people who cheat on their spouses experience a higher level of depression and anxiety and suicide? It's the same with, with people that are promiscuous. It's the same and even worse with the same-sex relationships. Did you know that transgender people have the highest suicide rate in any demographic anywhere? It's actually over 40%. Okay? Four out of ten people who struggle with, with transgenderism will commit suicide. Now, before you say, well, that's, you know, that's because people don't accept them. That's because people are mean to them. That is absolutely not the truth. Because there are lots and lots and lots of other groups who are marginalized. There are lots and lots of other groups who experience deep cultural rejection and who experience bullying, right? And actually all of their suicide rates are either average or below average in some cases. It's something deeper. Johns Hopkins stopped doing sex reassignment surgeries because they found that changing someone's gender does not fix the underlying problem of the heart. It just doesn't fix the the problem. The rate of suicide and the rate of chronic depression doesn't change at all, even after surgery. Sexual immorality has terrible consequences to it, and it's inviting sin and death into your own body. You sin against your own body. And remember what, what, what Paul's warning is. Sexual immorality, the, the, the sexual immoral, immoral person will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sex, sexual sin brings death to your body and into your life. And it has a huge cost to it. But there's actually bigger implications than that. In fact, let's look at our text again. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Then he says, food is meant for the stomach and stomach is meant for the food. And God will destroy both one and then the other. Understand Paul is quoting a popular proverb that people use to justify sexual immorality. Because the idea was, well, you know, um, the way that you satisfy your natural desire for hunger is to eat, right? Well, then the way you satisfy that your natural sexual desire is to do whatever scratches that itch. That's the justification. And Paul does agree that, that eating is certainly a natural you know, appetite, right? You do get hungry. You are designed to be that way. But Paul makes a point to say that's temporary, right? That's not going to go on forever. Food, he says, is meant for the stomach and the stomach meant for the food. But then he says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, this is the crux of the matter here. Our bodies are not meant for sexual morality. They were meant for God. They are meant to be used to glorify God. Our bodies have a special significance to God. We were made in his image. We were created in his likeness. We were created to reflect his goodness. And sexual immorality completely dishonors that. It tarnishes that image. It distorts that reflection. Sexual immorality is, is like to spit in the face of God himself. Look what he says next. He says, and God raised the Lord. And he also raised, he will also raise this up by his power. God sent his son to die, right? To redeem us. Right? And not just to save your soul, but to also to save your body too. You see, our hope isn't to just die and then float around like some like, you know, ethereal spirit for the, for the rest of eternity. Right? To float around in heaven with, with no 
with no definition. Our hope actually is the resurrection. Our hope is that one day that we will physically be raised to new life with a glorified body to be like Christ. Paul tells us that in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Your body is important to God. Your body is important to God. It's so important that God sent his son to die so he can resurrect your body. Your body is sacred to God. Paul continues and says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is staggering. Your body is not just your soul, right? Your body is also a member of Christ. Every bit of you, every bit of you belongs to Christ as a part of Christ. You are a member of him when you put your trust in him. Which means what you do with your body, you are doing to Christ. What you do with your body, you do with Christ. Which is exactly what Paul says next. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never, he says. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her body? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Now here's the image here. We're called to honor God with our bodies. We're called to satisfy that God-given desire for sex in a context of marriage, which itself is a picture of the union of Christ and his own church. We are to glorify God and enjoy this gift in a context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. And when we do that, it brings a union between husband and wife, a holy union. And because and they become one flesh, the Bible makes really clear. And when they trust in Jesus, when they put their hope in Christ, they become one with Christ together. They're united together in Jesus. But when a person commits sexual immorality, they also create a union, right, with those people that they engage with. An unholy union, which doesn't belong with Christ. Sexual immorality in, 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 in the life of a Christian is, is like introducing a foreign object into the, the body of Christ or to the union of Christ. It's something that doesn't actually belong there. It's like an infection. It's a destructive infection. And Paul continues and said, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You see, sexual sin has enormous, enormous spiritual implications. How can we be united with Christ when we are killing our own bodies in sexual sin? How can we be united with Christ if we're creating unholy unions with others through sexual immorality? It's no wonder why Paul says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because those two are completely incompatible. And then Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Run. Every other sin a person commits is outside of his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then notice what he says here. This is something we need to hear over and over and over and over again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? 
within you, whom you have from God. Not only are you united with Christ in a mystical way, his spirit comes to inhabit you. He comes to live inside of you. You are his dwelling place, his temple. How could you possibly profane that temple through sexual immorality? And then he says, you were not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This right here is the most devastating of all truths. This truth right here, if you truly understand it, should cause you to run and flee sexual immorality immediately. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. David Gunderson, uh, in an article that I have quoted many times, uh, wrote, Most Christians are familiar with the powerful Pauline phrase, We are bought with a price. It renders a hammer blow to our constant notion of personal rights and privileges and reminds us quite forcefully that we belong to Christ and not ourselves. You were bought with a price, and this purchase has implications. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul makes this capstone of his exhortation of sexual purity. For you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And in the very next paragraph, he again appeals to this redemptive reality as one basis uh, for his exhortation to be content with your early, earthly status and position. You were bought with a price. Do not be slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in the condition in which he is called. The fact that we have been bought has invasive implications. When God purchased you from the slave market of sin, his goal for you was not a minor tweaking or slight service. His aims and demands... He aims and he demands your absolute transformation and absolute ownership. He bought you. He owns you. No conditions, no qualifications, no fine print. You are his. This is a staggering. This is staggering enough as it stands. The implications of my life being owned by another are far reaching and pervasive, he says. Yet Paul is getting at something much deeper and much more intense and more devastating You were not just bought. You were bought with a price. Why did Paul add this phrase? Why didn't he just say you were bought? Therefore glorify God with your body. Doesn't the concept of a purchase include the concept of of a price? Doesn't the idea of buying logically include a cost? Were the Corinthians so economically challenged that they needed to be reminded that the idea of purchase and, and price were logically linked? There seems to be some significant conceptual redundancy here. He continues and says, but the the Corinthians were not naive about the marketplace. And Paul was not being redundant. He is not simply saying you have been bought. And as with every purchase, there was a price. He is not reminding them about a general conceptual connection between purchase and price. He is talking about blood. He's talking about the cross. He is talking about the Son, you were bought and look at what it cost. You were bought and do not forget the price that was paid. Or from God's perspective, I bought you and I paid dearly for you. He continues and says, oh, how much he paid. 
See Christ on the cross forsaken by his father so that we might be forgiven and not forgiven, but reconciled and not reconciled, but sanctified and not just sanctified, but glorified and not just glorified, but adopted. See the father turning his back on his heaving, suffocating, agonized, mystified son for the first and last time in the history of eternity. Hear the son cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hear the father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear the prophet say, the Lord was pleased to crush him. God's pleasure in his son and God's pleasure in crushing his son are incompatible and incomprehensible. Which is why Paul does not just say, you were bought, you were bought with a price. How many things have been bought and sold and bartered in the history of the world? The number is almost infinite. But there's never been a purchase like this because there never has been a price like this. If you're looking for a motivating reason, he says, to devote yourself to God afresh today. This is it. If you're searching for a reason to get up in the morning to fulfill your Christian responsibility, let this be your reason. If you desperately need strength to love and serve and pray and fight and forgive and study and stand and preach and parent and witness and endure and rejoice, here is the gospel strength. Because perhaps the only redemptive reality more powerful than the fact that you were bought was the height of the price that was paid for you. Why today should you do what is right? Why should you flee from sexual immorality? You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body that Christ died to save. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Flee from youthful passions. Don't try to fight it. Don't try to wrestle with it. Don't try to use your willpower against it. Flee. Run for your life. And you might say, okay, you beat me over the head with that long enough. So what do I do? You say to flee. So how does that work? Right? What does that look like? How do I apply this to my life? Well, um, a pastor of, of Heritage uh, Bible Church in Greer, South Carolina, Trent Hunter wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition titled Flee, a strategy for pursuing sexual purity that gives, and, and, and it gives a very practical application to this. And he uses the word flee to create an acrostic to help you remember this. And so I'll just walk you through this. The first step is, number one, fill your life with Christ. Fill yourself with Christ. Fill your mind up with Jesus Fill yourself with his word, right? The Bible says, man shall not live up by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, right? And not only fill yourself with the word of God, but also fill yourself with his people. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That's God's model. That's why you belong in a local church. That's why when people say, well, I, you know, I'm a Christian, but I, I, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't like his church. Then, then you don't, you don't love Jesus, this is, because this is how God designed us to be. We desi- we're designed by God to need each other and to preach to one another and to to exhort one another and encourage one another. So fill yourself with Christ. The second thing is to lock out the lies. Right? Why do we run toward sexual sin instead of from it? Because it's a lie. It's a lie that we believe. It's a lie that we are tempted by. Lock out the lies. 
You see, we wouldn't engage it if it didn't promise us something. But sexual sin promises something. It promises fulfillment. It pl- promises pleasure. It promises joy. It promises that if you that you can still dabble in it and you can still toy with it and you can still play with it and not get hurt. But it's still a lie. And for some reason, it's a lie that so many people believe. We need to lock that lie out. Which means we have to take action in our lives. What that means is if somebody, you know, of the opposite sex tends to linger around you too long at work and tries to get a little too close to you at times, or maybe has those unspoken advances, you need to be really, really clear. You need to say, I'm sorry, but I can't can't be close to you like that. You need to say, you know what? I'm sorry, but like this kind of flirting is not, not good for me. Right? You need to put a stop to it. Now, people are going to struggle with this because they say, well, that's just, just rude. Well, I, you know, I mean, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to make it awkward. Who cares? Right? Who cares about that? Better to appear rude than to fall prey to sexual sin. Jesus said you have to take radical action. He said it's better for you to pluck out your eyeball rather than to have your whole body thrown into the fire. Cut off your hand rather than to have your whole body thrown into the fire. You have to take radical action. And to put a stop to it. We need to lock out the lie. That might mean you have to have accountability software installed on your computer and your smartphone that other people can check up on you with. That might mean that you need to avoid certain people altogether. That might mean you have to put up guardrails in your life where you just decide, I will never, ever, ever, ever have a meal alone with somebody of the opposite sex that's not, when my spouse isn't there. Right? You and I need to do whatever we have to do to lock out the lie so we don't hear its call. And then we need to exchange the lie for the truth. We need to be preaching to ourselves continually all the time the word of God. We need to be replacing the lies in our head with the truth of God's word. Truths like God is not stingy, but good. Sinful pleasures are not fulfilling, but fleeting People are not objects. They're image bearers of God. This is not private. This is going to reach to the highest heavens. Right? God does not approve of sin because he loves to forgive. Right? He forgives us to free us from sin. Sexual sin isn't harmless. It is defrauding. Right? It's not going to be easy to turn back on this. As you're already hardening your own heart. This is not inevitable. Since God always provides a way to escape. Your past doesn't define you. Christ's blood does. Sin always has a cost. Or you were bought with a price. We need to exchange the lie for the truth. And finally, we need to expose ourselves to the light. And what that means is we need to confess. If you fall into sexual sin, you will be tempted to hide in the dark and pretend it didn't happen. But remember, we're also sinners, so we must. We need to confess. Confession brings sin to the light. And it brings light to our eyes so we can see what we couldn't see before in the darkness. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of our sin, and the glory of God's grace. The Apostle John says 
God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Coming to Christ means coming out of hiding to expose ourselves to the light and to be covered with Christ's blood. As Christians, the best thing to do, of course, is to stay in the light. But the best thing that we can do when we wander into the shadows is to run back to God and to confess. That's where it all starts. Confess your sin to God. He forgives. But don't stop there. Confess your sin one to another and pray for one another. That is what the church is for. That is what your Christian friends are for. So how do you apply this to your life? Fill yourself with Christ. Lock out the lies. Exchange the lies for the truth. Expose yourself to the light. Flee, my friends. Flee from sexual immorality. Our world is covered up in it. Flee from sexual temptation. Flee for your life. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray right now that, Lord, that all of us would receive this and all of us would have the courage to believe it and to stand firm by it. Father, never let us fall prey to the temptation to water down your word. Let us never fall prey to the temptation to ignore the difficult parts of your word. Help us to embrace them, Lord, and declare them, Lord, with love. As Jesus came full of grace and truth, let us always be full of grace, but at the same time declare the truth. And Father, Lord, help us all. Lord, if there's anything, any device that the enemy that he uses against this world is, it is sex. It's everywhere. It's in the movies. It's on TV. It's on magazine covers at the grocery store. It's on the internet. It's, it's not, it's even in stupid hamburger commercials. Father, help us. Give us strength, Lord. Help us to be the people who desire you. Help us to honor you with our bodies. Help us to be pure in your sight, Lord. Not because we're good, because you are good. Help us to, to walk with you in unbroken fellowship. Help us to not fall prey to the siren song and the temptations that come continually, Lord. And help us all to have the courage and the wisdom to do what your word says is to flee, to run. And Father, I pray for this congregation, Lord, as you grow it, Lord, that you would continue to help all of us to come to spiritual maturity, Lord. And we would continue to declare your word and share your hope with other people. Father, we pray for those who are not here, who are on vacation today, Lord, that are traveling. We pray for traveling mercies for them. And I pray, Lord God, that you'd meet everyone here in the place that they need to be met, Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would raise up in this place of people who are passionate for your name and who are willing to go out and share the hope of the life of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. We love you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.